The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about growing up as a child who is what we call a replacement child. And I've been reading this book by this wonderful author, Barbara Jaffe. It's called When Will I Be Good Enough? A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing. And this is really about her life, but it is so so important for people to hear this. It, it relates to people who are, quote, replacement children, whether they had a sibling that died before them or an adopted child or something has happened, or maybe even a stepchild, or, you know, sometimes people feel like they're a replacement child, even when they aren't a replacement child. So we're going to talk about this because it's all about loving oneself. We talk about this show is named Fighting for Love. Sometimes we have to fight for love for ourselves, as well as fighting for love with um, a partner or a child or a parent. So this is kind of the issue is how, how Barbara could really love herself and love her parents, even when she went through all this trauma growing up. So let me tell you a little bit about Barbara Jaffe, EDD. She is an award-winning English professor at El Camino College, California, just up the coast. And she is a fellow in UCLA's Department of Education. She's offered many workshops to students to help them find their writer's voice through nonfiction. And very, uh, very wonderful. She was uh, named by her college and honored by them when she was named Outstanding Woman of the Year and Distinguished Teacher of the Year. And her wish for this new book is that she can help others. One, For one thing, she can help other replacement children really understand and accept their own challenging journeys as she reveals her own so they can relate to her. And also, she wants to offer a cautionary tale to parents who have, you know, unwittingly set the stage in their own families for a child who serves as a replacement child for another or as a child that is viewed as less than by comparison. Barbara shares her inner journey to wholeness so that readers might be able to relate to their own challenges and and grow from that. 
She uh, is a fourth generation San Francisco uh, uh, woman from San Francisco, but she has lived in Los Angeles her adult life. So we're really thrilled to have her join us. Thank you, Barbara, for coming on the show. Thank you, Mari, for inviting me. I'm thrilled to have a conversation with you. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book. Well, um, I have always been a writer, and um, I knew that there was a book in me. I wasn't quite sure the direction, but I started with what ended up to be the first chapter and really uh, saw myself of opening myself up, examining the pieces of my life that didn't seem to quite fit, and then slowly put them back together in the pages of the book. So that's exactly how the book unfolds, um, discussing areas that I knew were challenging for me, my self-confidence, my self-worth, my self-esteem. And so it's always been important to me to reflect on these challenges because when I write, it's a way, it's very cathartic for me. It's a way to help me grow and to heal. It's cathartic for you and cathartic for other people who read it who can relate. And, you know, I think that all of us have places in us that we think that we're not good enough. In fact, um, I've just been putting on a workshop myself called um, The Love Connection, Learning to Love Yourself. So I think all of us have in us that that place where we don't feel that we're good enough. I don't know if it's our ego. I don't know if it's our right frontal cortex <laughs> or, or what it is. But we all have that. And I think all of us can relate whether or not we're a replacement child to your book, which is wonderful. Thank you so much. And, you know, you're right. That's not something that I necessarily had thought about when I was writing it. I know that not, you know, there's not a tremendous amount of people out there that are replacement children, but as you mentioned earlier, there um, many of us feel less than, and sometimes in our family of origin, even if, you know, we come from a family where, um, you know, no one passed away, there could be an ill child or, as you said, um, a blended family maybe adopted, and we do have areas of our life that we feel less than, and readers have, have mentioned that they see the universality in the themes, um, definitely, even if they're not replacement children. Right. I, you know, I, everyone that I speak to, you know, when you really, really think about it, you know, some we all have that place where we um, maybe can't even take a compliment because we don't really believe it. You know, I, I work with people all the time as an attorney mediator, and when we're in session, I can see this in them, that they're not feeling, you know, entirely accepting of themselves. And, of course, if we don't accept ourselves, it's really hard to accept someone else as well. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, what a replacement child is. Okay. So in the literal sense, um, it is a child who is born after the death of a sibling. And the family had um, generally decided that their family was complete and intact. Parents maybe did not want to have any more children. And um, then sadly, something unforeseen happens. In the case of my brother who was born before me, he was about two years old when he died of meningitis. Mm. And within six weeks, he had passed away. I have an older brother who's now almost, well, seven years older than me because of the gap of, of Jeffrey passing away. 
and then I was born to replace Jeffrey. And I think that um, what can happen, and it did happen in my family, was that there wasn't a lot of communication. We weren't allowed to talk about Jeffrey. We saw pictures in the house, but mm. so upset and in such grief, understandably, that she was not able to healthily go through the steps. In those days, there were not you know, family groups um, uh, talking about loss. In my family of origin, therapy was not considered something that was okay. And so there was, n- there was no talking about this loss. And um, instead, she tells me the story that uh, her doctor paid her a visit when she was grief-stricken in bed, and he literally slapped her across the face and said, get over it. Oh, my God. <laughs> And, and you <sighs> move on and have another one. <sighs> a few months, she was pregnant with me. And so, you know, I can totally understand why when I came along so soon after, she wasn't emotionally ready for me, not to mention the fact that she was very worried that maybe something like that would happen to me. Right, right. How about your father? What was his role? My father um, was a, a businessman, and he really focused on his business. So he found his outlet through that. Um, he wanted to talk about Jeffrey. He would often take me downstairs as I grew older. And even when I um, was married, we'd go downstairs and he'd show me Jeffrey's baby book or old photos. Mm. So he was able to talk about it, and I think he was able to feel uh, it was a little bit healthier for him. And um, he didn't have that idea of conditional love in relationship to me. Mm. I don't think he saw me as a replacement. Right, right. So what are the areas of your life that you feel were probably the most affected by by being in that position as a replacement child? Um, And again, uh, some of these qualities I know uh, many of us have, but one of them is um, the people-pleasing. And I know that, as I said, there are a lot of people this way. For me personally, I sensed that my mother was broken and needed um, to be happy. And I, I made it my life's mission really, throughout my life, to try to make her happy, to try to not make waves, to please her. And that, of course, morphed into uh, pleasing many people in all areas of my life, personal and professional. And uh, the idea of being a perfectionist, not to do anything less than perfect, both in school um, and um, per- uh, personally, and that's a very hard um, way in which to live, and um, that the idea, too, of a low self-esteem and the anxiety of feeling less than is another quality that I have and that many children of, of loss can experience. And children of divorce go through that, too, you know, where they feel they, they, feel they have to make their parents happy, you know, with, right. with one out of two marriages and ending in divorce. That's another similar quality that a lot of kids have. One will be the pleaser, and the other might be the rebel, and then, you know, something in between. But that's another one is where you feel like you have to take care of that parent because you sense that that parent is broken. So, again... 
this is another way that people can relate to your book, That's even if they're not necessarily a replacement child. Yes, and, and that's true. And as a result, I deferred many of my decisions to my mother. And um, that I transferred that over into my own relationships with my husband and later as a mother having to come to terms with the fact that I couldn't keep doing that. So the book was a way for which me to reflect on those areas that I know I needed to change. Did did you ever talk with your mother about this when you became an adult? No, no. We never had the conversation. She did not want to talk about Jeffrey. Um, But when I would get upset about things, she would often say... um, I, I, you know, you think you have problems. There are people out there who have more. And I knew that she lost a child. How can you compare that to anything? Right, right. So I always felt that I wasn't justified to feel the feelings that I had, Mm. that she cared so much, but that she was so, um, didn't have the tools in which to empathize with, with me, which is really all I wanted was for her to listen. So we could not really have that conversation. Right, right. So um, how did his short life affect you so profoundly when you really, you know, he, d- you, he died before you were born. So what uh, was there with you with relation to your brother that, that passed? Was there anything that you felt about him? Well, interesting, I mean, kind of spiritually, as, I, as I've become an adult, I've sensed that there's kind of this little angel around me, and I attributed it to Jeffrey. Um, but I, I think that it's forced me to um, speak up for what I know I need and deserve. Um, I feel that, in a sense, not having the communication as a child growing up and knowing that I so wanted to talk about Jeffrey and his loss and acknowledge him, that forced me to become more of a communicator. So I think, you know, some of the positive things as a result, even though he he didn't live long, he lives within me. Yes, yes. And he probably is an angel around you, you know, watching you and guiding you and helping you. So I think what's interesting about whenever we experience it, these challenges in our life, I have this philosophy, which maybe you do too, which is, that really everything is for our highest good, even though it may not seem like it at all. Look how successful you are. I mean, just the fact that you are a caregiver means that you're a caring person. Um, the fact that you were such a perfectionist helped you to be a great writer. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes if we look at the other side of the coin, that maybe this was your contract coming into this world. You know what I mean? Right. No, I've, I've, I've really felt that as well, that this is something that I needed to do. And in, in writing the book and in learning about myself and becoming the best person that I can be and a whole person, I've honored Jeffrey through that. So I, I really do see that. And I also realize that life isn't black or white, that my mother had some wonderful qualities that she instilled in me and that I know she loved me as best as she could. And I some, she's not with us. Um, she passed away about eight and a half years ago. But I sometimes have a conversation with her in my head, and, and I can sense that she's proud of me, although I think initially it would have been a difficult book for her to read. I think that I needed to write this, and, and I think she would understand that. 
Yeah, and she probably at some level, some place in this universe or in another universe really does know what you're talking about. And, and you know, I remember before my mother died, I, I had gone to a, an astrologer in L.A. who was actually a psychologist and an astrologer, and she had a radio show. <clears throat> but I drove up there, and um, she said, you know, we don't like to predict death, but there is something you need to deal with with your mother. And um, she couldn't communicate, kind of like what you, a, a different way for different reasons, but she couldn't communicate. And so um, I just had her come over. I had to have my tonsils out when I was 40, believe it or not. <laughs> and I couldn't talk. So I said, Mom, just tell me your whole life story. And it was very interesting because all the pieces got put together without me saying a word. Wow. Yeah, it was very powerful. And it was really on the suggestion of this astrologer. My mother died like a year and a half later. But I had that opportunity. But I think when you were saying sometimes you talk to her, I think that's really great for you to just, you know, have a chair in front of you and just see her face or put her picture and just tell her everything. Just tell her everything. I think that would be so healing because I know it was so healing for me just to be able to hear without me ever even having to tell her the things that um, were upsetting to me as a child. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. And what also was a gift was that while she was not able to necessarily love me unconditionally throughout her life in all ways, she was able to do that with my own children. So I thought that was a real gift. Oh, that's great. So as a grandma, she could really do that. Yes. Yeah. Well, she also had time, you know, to process as well, you know, and maybe even time to look back and see what she didn't do for you. Maybe she knew more than you thought she did about how she was not communicating with you. You know, that's very possible. And while she couldn't articulate it or say she was sorry for whatever happened, her way of of saying that was to be totally present. So you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was her second chance. Yes. You know, with your with your children. So how did it affect you as a mom? Um, well, yes, I think profoundly. Um, when I was growing up, my mother pretty much took center stage in the house. She filled up the rooms with her own energy. And I deferred to her, as I mentioned. And... So um, when I became a mother, I decided, really made that decision that I would not do that. I would be a mother who had no needs except for what I could do for her children. And um, as many mothers do, they put their children first. I really put myself very far down. And consequently, they grew up with a mom who didn't have any problems, or so I, I <laughs> they didn't that I didn't. They didn't know that mom had problems. <laughs> exactly that I didn't have any needs, and they didn't have to worry about me. And I, you know, that's not real life. And and I, it's I regret that. But as I often say to myself, I don't want to believe in regret. So it was a lesson that I came to later in life, but one that I write about to help maybe younger mothers understand that children need to see their their families, their parents as whole people, and that we can have bad moods and say, I just, 
I can't talk to you right now, or I just need some space. That was not something I did because I was so worried. I didn't want them to worry about me the way I worried about my mother. So I went to the other extreme. Right. But the difference is, is that your children are hearing you saying this in your book, and they probably communicate with you differently so that you could tell them, gee, you know, I didn't share this with you. And, you know, I I would hope that you would be a little bit more, you know, human with your own kids and don't make the mistake that I did. Right. So that's that's what I do. And that's what I tell. I, I've told younger parents that it's important for them to, to for their kids to see them as whole people. And your own children can relate to that too, you know? Absolutely. You know, I I think I was like that with my kids too, to try and um, everything's fine even when it wasn't. And the good news is that um, I can be more honest with them about my feelings now, especially when they tell me something that they're going through and I go, okay, hey, I was there. I, I get it. This is what happened to me. And you know what? That is part of life. And I felt like that too. And I think that helps them to, you know, relate, especially because now my, you know, my youngest is 31. And so it's, you know, she's, she's a human being that understands, you know, <laughs> when, you know, when they're 12, you can't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but when they're older, you can, you can do that. Yes, that's true. Now, you also went through some body image issues. Uh, what, what kinds of issues came up with that? Well, part of the idea of being a perfectionist and wanting to go to an extreme was the fact that I was chubby, and my mother, I think, did not want me to have to have issues as a teenager, um, difficulties with my weight, so she told me at an early age that I really should watch it, which was code words for I was getting fat, and then mm. I so. Initially, I lost a few pounds and was getting rave reviews from people who said that I looked terrific, and I thought, well, I could keep doing that. And so I eventually became anorexic for a few And um, so that had become a lifelong issue with eating and body image, and it's taken me a long time to come to terms with that, and it always became a dance that between my mother and I to the point where she begged me to eat. And during times of high stress or sadness was very easy for my um, for myself to just say, I don't want to eat anything. That became kind of the default. Yeah, so you had these mixed messages from her. Yeah. And again, trying to please her. And then, yeah, yeah. So how did you get through that? Well, um, some therapy, lots of therapy, and just kind of a lot of self-talk and to acknowledge that what I see in the mirror may not be actually what other people see. And I think that that came to fruition really to a head when I was in, in shopping. I write about this and I went to grab a um, pair of pants to try on and the um, salesperson said, oh, that's not your size. And I was arguing with her, of course it's my size. And I suddenly realized I was buying really large clothing. Oh, but I was full yeah. in, and that's what I saw myself. Mm, I just, kind of like to hide. Yes, exactly. Um, so I, I kind of thought, well, I'm going to try on the smaller size. And, um, you know, it was so foreign to me. And to this day, it's still not something that's comfortable. Yeah. Acknowledge that. 
So, you know, as a replacement child or as a child of divorce or a child that is experiencing trauma, which really you experience trauma from just growing up like that and all these other children that experience trauma. What um, what are your suggestions for the children that are growing up like that? Well, I think um, as, as testimony to my own life that we can live full, wonderful, joyful, serene lives despite any challenges that we might have. I have often said the statute of limitations of blaming our parents runs out when we're 18. I've never <laughs> seen myself <laughs> I've never seen myself as a victim, but to examine the areas of my life and learn from them. So I think first to the ability to focus on ourselves and our own needs and um, not in a selfish way necessary, but to honor that, again, going back to the idea of being a mother, and we have our own needs regardless of whether we're a parent or not. And I kind of use the burnt toast syndrome metaphor. You know, I would always take on the, the burnt toast and give everybody the fresh piece of toast if I had burned the piece. Mm. And mm-hmm. realize no one has to eat the burnt toast. Right. <laughs> Throw it out. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. If we don't, if we have our life script that don't serve us, um, that we, you know, maybe we don't feel worthy or we have to be perfectionists, we can redo those, you know. We can change. We don't have to think of ourselves in those same ways. I've also come to realize not to have a lot of expectations of other people. I'd say that expectations are planned disappointments. And I can have expectations for myself, but for others in many ways, if I have those kinds of expectations, it sets me up for disappointments. Yeah, and you know what I'm learning in my old age, too, is that, you know, um, my children have to be who they are you know, not who I want them to be. You know, you want the best for them. You want them to be happy. You want to save them from pain. All these things that as good moms, quote, good moms, that we want to do is to um, shield them and protect them and have them be happy. And sometimes we have to just accept that their journey is not our journey. That's right. My mother had some great advice when she said, don't put your head on their shoulders, and that was really very helpful. I don't give advice anymore unless I'm asked, and I've come to realize that people don't ask me very much. And so when I was giving advice, I guess I wasn't asked for it, but I... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and you know, it's really hard for me as an attorney because people pay me to give them (laughs) advice. And so when I get home, you know, or when I'm with my kids, I have to say to myself, if you're not getting paid, don't give the advice. <laughs> but I remember one time when my son, um, yeah, he was, he finally was, I don't know, like in his early 20s. And he asked me uh, about something about his job. And um, he said, so what do you think I should do? And I said, really? Do you really want to know what I think? Do you really want my advice? And he said, yeah. He said, maybe he was 25. I don't think he was 22. He said, yeah, because you know what I've learned, Mom? Like, 90% of the time you're right, so why should I, you know, hassle with it? (laughs) So I thought that was like the greatest thing that he ever told me. I'll never forget it. (laughs) What an endorsement. I know. It was really cute. I mean, now he wants me to ask him for advice all the time. He goes, now you should listen to me. Cute. Yeah. Cute. yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how our uh, the things kind of reverse, and I'm sure 
if your mother was around, you would, um, you know, be able to give her advice too. Yes, and I know that she's proud of me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, well, you saw how she treated your own children, her grandchildren, yeah. you know. So even though you may say she didn't have the tools, she probably got the tools when she watched you interact with your kids. Yeah, you know, that's very possible. I hadn't thought of that, but yes. You know, because they learn from, I mean, I learn from my kids. Don't you learn from yours? All the time. That's right. You know, I mean, who knows if in a previous life they were our parents, right? (laughs) (laughs) So what is it that you really would like the people who read your book to to take away? Um, As I had mentioned, that no matter what we are dealt in life, and we all have something that we can overcome and live serene, beautiful lives. And, And I wrote the book. Um, really for myself initially, but when I finished it, I said, I want to be able to share this with other people because so much of the idea of our self-confidence, our self-worth, our self-esteem, we struggle maybe at different times of our life with these various issues Mm -hmm. if we're honest with ourselves. And I want to be able to help others through my writing. And um, so that's what I would love my readers to um, experience. Right. Well, I think that's wonderful, and I think that'll happen. So just give your website, and it's time for us to go. Okay. My website is barbaraannjaffe.com, B-A-R-B-A-R-A-A-N-N-J-A-F-F-E.com. And this is a wonderful book, When Will I Be Good Enough? A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing. So thank you, and keep in touch, okay? And we'll have you back on your next book. Love that. Thank you, Mari. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. You gotta fight both night and day Doesn't matter what some people may say Don't be the lamb's cry, be the lion's roar Cause love is worth fighting for, I know, yeah Love is worth fighting for Love is worth fighting for